Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Welcome, listeners. I am really excited and so honored for today's guest, Dr. Aidan Scheim. He is an assistant professor at Drexel University, Dornsif School of Public Health. He's a social epidemiologist interested in understanding and transforming the impacts of social policy and healthcare environments on the health of stigmatized populations. He conducts community-engaged research with lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans, or LGBT populations and people who use drugs and he conducts methodological research on how we measure discrimination and other social structural factors in the environment. He has over 15 years of experience in the field of transgender health and leads community-based studies with trans populations in the US, Canada, and India. Welcome, Aiden. How are you today? I'm good. It's great to see you, Carmen. And thanks so much for having me on. I've been listening to the podcast for quite a while now. So it's uh, excellent and an honor to be here. Thank you for agreeing to come on. I think I've been planning to have you on for a while and then the, the stars aligned. So I, since I've known you, I think for a long time, sometimes what I do is think back to an origin story of where I met you. You know, the superhero stories have like an origin element. I think I met you when I was a social worker, like a really long time ago, like 2005 or 2006. Yes, yes. And we didn't really know know each other, but I think I like met you for coffee or something. And then our worlds collided more in like the space of, of research, probably in the last 10 years or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I think we met when you were a social worker and I was literally a teenager. I, I was a sexual health peer <laughs> educator in, in North York. I was literally, um, <laughs> I was going to say a child, but I suppose I shouldn't call teenagers children. I was young. That way. I didn't know you were so young. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Now I'm feeling really old. So I just introduced you with your official bio and I'm wondering if we're in an elevator, which I really hope I can be in an elevator with you soon, but imagine I'm in an elevator with you and I don't know you. And we're going up a few floors and I'm like, hey, what do you do? What's your life all about? How would you describe that? Great question. The dreaded elevator pitch. <laughs> people don't know how, right? Usually people cannot say it in a few sentences, right? Like it's the problem with the PhD. And because I do research in a number of different areas, I know when, like, when I was on the job market in academia, I was so stressed out about this. I thought nobody's going to give me a job because I can't sum up my research in two sentences. <laughs> it worked out fine. And I figured out the pitch. So, I mean, broadly, I would say I'm a social epidemiologist. I work with uh, communities impacted by stigma. 
uh, to understand how stigma impacts health and to look for solutions. And particularly, I've historically worked with mostly with trans populations and with people who use drugs. And then I also have a bit of a line of sort of more methods focused research, specifically right now looking at how to measure stigma and discrimination in intersectional ways. Thank you. And for the listeners who might not be in epidemiology, how do you describe to them what is social epidemiology? So for me, social epidemiology is looking at the causes of health and disease at the population level. I would say social epidemiology is interested in the impacts of social processes and structures on health and well-being in populations. And thinking about, of course, as well, how those um, social factors might interact with biological or psychological processes. So you're really interested in what's going on in the world outside and how that impacts people's health. Exactly. Amazing. I'm going to show up to your house. You're in Philly. Yep. I like Philly. I don't... I don't know Philly as well as I wish I did. You know, my partner lived there for 10 years and knows Philly more, but I've been there a few times and I really like the market and all the good food there. Philly's the best. Yeah. Do you mean like the the market downtown or we live near the um the quote unquote Italian market, which is really more more Mexican than Italian oh. these days and it's great. Well, I need to visit, but I think I've only been to the one downtown where all the tourists go. But I would, when I come, I'm going to, I'm going to show up at your house. You're going to take me to this Mexican-Italian market. <laughs> Please do. Philly is great. I, I, you know, as you know, I was in Toronto for a long time. And when I moved to London for my PhD, no shade on London, but let's just say I miss Toronto a lot. Um, but Philly Philly is great. I'm, um, yeah, it's a great place. Everyone should come visit after the, the pandemic. Yeah, and there's some really good gay bars there too. I've been to quite a few. I don't know if they're still there. That was a while ago, but there was oh, life, you know? There's a lot of good things going on there. And the weather here is warm enough. People, what people have actually been doing, even throughout the winter, is in a socially distant way, having drinks in the alley behind one, a few of the gay bars. I love it. I love it. People, you know, having life happen in the middle of a pandemic in a safe way. It's amazing. So I'm going to show up at your place, which I would actually love to do. And with my time machine, and I'm going to say, Aiden, take me back in this time. And there's space for physically distancing. So we can (laughs) both be safe in there. Take me back in this time machine to where you started thinking about, I guess, social epidemiology how our social worlds impact our health. Where would we go on the time machine? And when would we go to? Where would we go? I guess we would go, just to go back, yeah, earlier to when I, to before a time when I knew what epidemiology was, you know, (laughs) when you ask people how they became an epidemiologist, absolutely nobody will say, oh, I've wanted to be an epidemiologist since I was a child. (laughs) (laughs) I actually wanted to be uh, a lawyer. Uh, when I was a kid, because I really... I did too! I love to argue. Are you a Leo? No, I'm a Capricorn. Uh, okay, okay. Right. <laughs> okay, so you want to be a lawyer. But then, uh, and I actually, I when I started university, I thought I was going to do my undergrad, something legal-related, something was doing it in criminology. I was really involved in prison justice and prison abolition organizing, and I really wanted to go in that direction. 
but I also, um, so I actually left high school when I was 16 and started working. Uh, and my, basically one of my first jobs, I worked in a movie theater for like a few months, but my first real job was actually- Did you eat a lot of popcorn? Oh, once you see the butter bag, you'll never eat it again. <laughs> <laughs> but then I got a job at, at supporting our youth in Toronto and was running programs for trans youth and working, so working in a health context. And about a year or two into my undergrad, I was like, wait a minute, why don't, it might make sense for me to bring the work I've already been doing since I was 16 into what I'm doing um, academically. And I ended up, I at that point had ended up in the sociology program at a U of T in Toronto and started doing some like independent research placements with people in the sociology department who were doing research around health and particularly around um, uh, HIV and LGBT health. And I was involved at the same time, sort of outside of my official academic work in some community-based research projects around um, trans health and HIV prevention. And, and then, you know, by the time I finished my undergrad, I still wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to do something around social determinants of health, um, but I wasn't totally sure. I thought I was going to apply to like a social science and health master's program. And then I went to a wedding uh, that my friends organized. Uh, my friends who were getting married did a really thorough job of seating arrangements. And they tried to make sure that people they sat together would have shared interests. Oh. And so the story they told me is that they sat me at this table with the queer academics because they thought that I would be hot for this like attractive gentleman academic who was sitting at, at this table. Those are good friends. Nice friends. <laughs> Great friends. And they sat another person at this table because they thought that um, she would get along with the queer academics who I ended up and I ended up connecting with her rather than the person I was supposed to be hot for. And by the end of the night, uh, I was convinced that I should do my my master's degree in epidemiology. And that was Greta Bauer, who became my master's and then my PhD advisor. So it was total serendipity. <laughs> That's amazing. That is, can I just say that is amazing. Greta Bauer's work is awesome. And she's awesome. And she actually inspired me to wear Fluvox because I saw her at a Rainbow <laughs> Health Ontario conference or something at the 519 Community Center. It was an academic event. And she was wearing Fluvox and looked funky. And I was like, and I was a student, a PhD student at the time. And I was like, wow, there's an academic who's got some good style and some great shoes. And I went up to her and she told me about Fluvox. And I was like, <laughs> the thing I wanted to mention is I also, because I was interested in being a lawyer for a moment, I actually did went to U of T to do criminology for my undergrad. But then I started volunteering at the Daily Bread Food Bank. It totally changed my mind. And I also started working at a group home for men living with schizophrenia. And then I ended up doing my undergrad in sociology. Same as you, I had no idea. That's so funny. And one of my profs was like interested in in um, schizophrenia and would just ask me questions and about my observations at the at the group home. So that's really funny. I didn't know we we both did our undergrads. <laughs> we were like formerly almost lawyers, not really ever happening like that. 
No, and it tr- also my friends who were lawyers scared me off because I just thought I'd get to argue all day, but it turns out there's a lot of paperwork. And so it, the more I learned, the less I was interested. <laughs> See, it was the arguing all the time that I was like, I don't know if I really want to do that. I kind of had this vision of like, you know, CSI Miami? I loved CSI <laughs> Miami. I loved it. Like, it was like so ridiculous and there was these drinking games like whenever Kane would like put on his sunglasses and take off his sunglasses you were supposed to take a shot so anyways I always thought it was going to be really like fun and glamorous and exciting like a CSI Miami type thing (laughs) I don't really think that that's the way it is though (laughs) no um (laughs) also on the I just say on the flu vlogs by the way I'm I'm surprised I actually thought that like they send a pair to all Karimin when they come out. Like, I didn't realize that people didn't all know about them. <laughs> no, but there are, I guess there's not a lot of people who wear flu fogs, but they they are. They're all queer. To be known as a queer academic shoe. <laughs> I really would like flu fog to sponsor me. So flu fog, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm a big fan. Happy to wear your shoes at conferences. <laughs> So anyways, I want to talk to you about your work on stigma. And I want you to share with the listeners, why is this a big issue in 2021? I know it's kind of obvious to you probably from from your work and where you are like, located in the world, even in the U.S. <laughs> but I mean, I think stigma is a big issue in every single place in the world. So what is your sort of pitch about why is this an urgent thing that that we need to be addressing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that with, particularly for like the communities that I work with, you know, stigma is the like big determinant of health at all levels, right? Um, I think people, often people hear stigma and they think about, you know, interpersonal mm-hmm. stigma and that's important, but um, so much of what impacts, you know, community I work with is structural stigma, you know, the criminalization of um, of drug use, the, um, you know, the, the entire binary gender system, right? All these factors at, at the structural level, as well as at sort of inter, in, interpersonally or in institutions. And I think that it's in some ways, like this very moment, like this, this year, this what's going on, I think that there's, I think more, yeah, more understanding that um, that stigma and discrimination are like fundamental drivers of health for for so many populations that that face it. And I'm glad to see it as well. This more of this focus on on the the structural the structural pieces. I think what can be what's challenging. I think you know I sometimes joke with my trans health research, for example, that basically you know scientifically it's not that complicated. The People just need to treat people nicely. Like the the the, the more the moral of the story is, um, you know, whatever we're looking at is that you know treating people badly is bad for their health. Which you don't need it. You don't need a PhD in epidemiology to to figure out. <laughs> uh, but I obviously there are so many different kind of lever points at which we can we can tackle um, stigma. So I guess I also would say I think it's important because everyone has a role to play in tackling it it's not this is not curing cancer like everybody regardless of their educational background their their work their social location actually can play a role in reducing health inequities related to stigma and so i think there's a lot of opportunity there i'm gonna get to that after 
I'm going to come right, I'm going to come right back to that point. But I want you to sort of, if you feel like it, share with the listeners some examples, maybe of what's how stigma shows up in someone's life. I know there's a lot of examples right now about trans rights, especially even in the U.S. right now with a, a bunch of different states. But we also know it's a global issue. I know there's also examples you could probably share about um, stigma experience of people who use drugs, as well as other, of course, anonymized examples, but just so the listener can get a sense of, so what does it mean for a stigma to be a social determinant of health? Like, what does that look like in someone's day-to-day life or in their, you know, month-to-month way of, of moving through the world? A great question. So, I mean, how to start with, how to start I guess <laughs> I know there's like a million examples. So we're not, you'd have to cover all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me try to think about someone's day. So, I mean, I guess to, you know, to start off with, you know, stigma impacts where someone is starting their day. Are they in a safe, in a home? Are they housed, you know, in a neighborhood where they have, uh, where they feel safe and have access to like basic amenities and resources like that, all of those structural determinants shape how you know the very sort of physical setting in which someone's day is beginning and whether or not they can thrive in that environment i think you know you leave you know you leave your house if you if you um are are lucky to have one and and you go outside and you you know i think in the u.s today you go outside and you see a newspaper and perhaps the the headline of that paper is a debate about your basic humanity looking what's happening right now at around the bills in you know 30 states i'm making up that number but it's a huge number of states that are trying to restrict access to um sports for for trans children so this sort of creating a a solution in search of a problem in terms of trying to prevent youth from uh, participating in sports that align with their with their gender as well as all these bills that are trying to criminalize basic health life-saving health care for for young trans people. So you, you might see that, or, you know, thinking about an example, you know, for people who use drugs, you know, you, you, you see um, headlines all the time that use incredibly dehumanizing language um, about, about people uh, who use drugs or people with substance use disorders. And I mean, recently there was, there's been a lot of stuff in the news, all this backlash against Carl Hart, for example, who has spoken out about his, very courageously about his own drug use and encouraging people to kind of in professional roles to come out of the closet about that. And we'll shout him out as a future podcast guest. Please come on the podcast. <laughs> yes, that would be amazing. Be great. And I think that part of speaks, so I think what's happening right now is that there's a lot of backlash. Like with him, you know, it's a perfect example where there's the stories, all these articles about his, his new book that are challenging stigma at the same time. There's then all of um, this backlash um, that's playing out very publicly in the media. Similarly, with trans issues, that the reason why we're seeing this whole wave of legislation is because there has been so much progress. Um, and with every kind of, you know, human rights or um, civil rights struggle, five steps forward, you know, a few steps back, right? That there is organized backlash against against progress. So anyway, that was a total tangent. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's so important that we can never rest in some ways. Be- because the progress could be taken. Yeah, we never, can never rest and also need to anticipate it. Like it was th- this wave, if you look at, you know, thinking about these trans rights bills, if you look, or these anti-trans bills, 
if you look at the history of any kind of human rights movement, it would it was entirely predictable that these bills would come around. And it does seem like, you know, people are were kind of caught off guard by them. And that I think that's sort of a missed opportunity because, you know, unfortunately, uh, one of the things we know about um, about stigma is that it is that there is this kind of back and forth or this this, you know, uneven um, progress that there's this it's not simply this linear uh, progression to ever greater freedom. And particularly when things are getting better, people in power feel threatened. So I think that's important. Right. Because it's all about power at the end of the day. It's about people trying to get more power because they have been given or their access to power has been limited. And then the people in power don't want to give up any power. So it's like, ah, it makes me feel worried. <laughs> the fact that there's always, we have to remain vigilant, you know, even to protect rights that you think exist, they could still be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, eroded or they could still be challenged. Should I go back to my <laughs> walking through yes, the day? Go, okay. sorry. No, it's fine. I, like, I could go on all day about the, like the, the backlash happening right now, but that's, that's depressing. So instead, let me tell you another depressing story about, um, about <laughs> well, what stigma was. We're going to end up on hope. Don't take worry. Care, so we, we can be all depressing now and then we're going to get to hope. <laughs> but I'm, I'm taking my imaginary walk through the neighborhood. I've seen, yes. I've seen the depressing, um, the, the newspaper headline that is sort of, you know, challenge, fundamentally not to, not to be too dramatic about it, but challenging my, you know, basic humanity. And then, um, you know, maybe I want to, um, I want to go to the coffee shop and get a coffee. And, you know, if I look a little bit scruffy, maybe I'm going to be, you know, suspicious the minute I walk in, or maybe my, um, my gender presentation, uh, raises questions, uh, for folks who are then, you know, staring at me when I walk in the door, maybe I want to go to the washroom in the coffee shop. And, you know, they have the, the men's and women's keys on the counter. And there's some kerfluffle about which washroom to use, or they give me the wrong one, or I'm worried about them giving me the wrong one. Like, all we've gotten to is me trying to get a coffee and this day has already gotten exhausted right <laughs> totally you're like it's only it's only 9 30 like, yeah. like and i think you know and this isn't you know i think to you know my own experience as someone who at least for the last decade plus of my life has you know the you know the privilege of pretty much never being perceived by strangers as trans unless i tell them but even the piece around the you know, the, that, around that anxiety, I still remember that. And, mm. and I think that that also helps me under, be able to understand what other people might sort of experience in those daily moments throughout their day, even though most of my days are pretty smooth now. Um, and so I guess part of, yeah, part of my motivation too, is to be able to, um, everybody should have, be able to have a smooth morning. Can, can you continue at the cafe to sit down and, you know, have their morning coffee and read the paper in peace without feeling um, just vigilant around all of the possible moments in which their, their, you know, their dignity could, uh, could be challenged. I think that's so powerful, Aiden. Like you really brought up the way that the messages in society, which are being told in the media, on TV, on the newspapers, on Facebook, on Twitter, can deny some people 
basic humanity, whether it's based on using drugs or not, or a gender identity or race or the combination of, of these immigration status, yeah. things like that. It just from the, your, your very awareness of that is stressful and then how that plays out and how people treat you and just being able to have that, that dignity of, of just walking around the world feeling okay or accepted or just left alone, <laughs> left alone in a nice yeah. way. You know? <laughs> so Exactly. And it's not just things that are like stigmatizing, but even just the reminder that you are of your position. So, I mean, I think, for example, like all of the, you know, all of the news stories about anti-Black police violence, you know, even, even if an article isn't being written in a stigmatizing way, and so often they are, you know, the search, the, the attempt to um, find fault in people who are murdered by police instead of, you know, finding fault in the police. But even if an article is written in a way that isn't stigmatizing, to be confronted on a daily basis with these reminders of the way that, um, you know, social structures put you at risk because of, I was going to say because of your race, but no, because of racism, um, that, yeah, how are you just going to go sit down and chill out? Like you're starting your, just your baseline, um, starting your day with this an incredible level um, of stress. Yeah, in in the combination of anger and sadness, as you said, wears wears people down. You know, in general, and then especially if you're part of or connected with with those communities as well. Mm-hmm. So this is where we're going to bring in the hope. This is where okay, you're going to tell the listeners what you you alluded to earlier, which is that. There are ways that listeners can work and be part of a solution. So let us know. Give us some hope, please. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think there's so many levels. I think that people can engage in, and I think I think it you know it starts, but really importantly, does not end with like personal reflection and learning and growth. I think that that is important but it's not the end like it's it's very you know you can read it's great to see that during um when the uprisings and um around um the movement for black lives really um accelerated during in 2020 all of the the popular books about anti-racism were flying off the shelves the library you know had year-long wait that's great but reading a book is a first step Mm -hmm. but important i think beyond doing that and beyond the again important step of being conscious of how we treat others interpersonally because that does matter i mean one less person contributing to interpersonal stigma is important Mm -hmm. particularly for the people in our lives who are directly impacted by it but also i think for people who aren't necessarily in in fields where they change policies or whatever um for people to be involved civically and politically and trying to change not just individual interpersonal stigma, but also structural forms of stigma. So getting involved in campaigns around, um, around uh, whatever the issue might, whatever your place to plug in might be, whether it's, you know, campaigns around decriminalization of drug use or sex work, um, around reducing police budgets or increasing um, um, accountability of police to, to communities. You know, it's, people are going to, there's so much work to do that in some ways I'm like, it doesn't really matter where people plug in. We all, because we can't, one person cannot possibly do it all. And so, and everything, everything is connected. So if you're getting involved in, you know, in um, 
you know, community organizing. What I was doing during the pandemic personally was getting involved in um, supporting um, efforts to increase uh, food security and access to COVID-19 testing for immigrant communities in the neighborhood where I live. And it was mostly like direct mutual aid of actually providing food. But through that work, you're also connecting people to immigration supports. Mm-hmm. You're also um, building, getting people registered to vote. So all of these things are are connected, no matter where, um, no matter where you plug in. I love that because you just said a few really important things for the listeners. One of them is that there are practical things we could do, like work at a food food bank, figure out who needs food. That's huge. Food is such a major part of survival and well-being and stress. So that is amazing. Second was registering people to vote, increasing people's access to full rights and, 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 and having voices heard. So I think that's also really important. And the third one is that there's so many causes for social justice, just pick any, you know, pick one that you feel moved to do. I think that's really inspiring because, I, you know, it's not like everybody has to do the same thing. Uh, there's so many issues around police violence, around racism, around trans rights, around sex worker rights, around people who use drug rights. There's so many things. And the third one, or maybe the fourth one, I maybe I'm not counting correctly. <laughs> You're the epidemiologist. <laughs> but was also, I want to flag what you said around interpersonal relations and just the way that we treat other people. I waitress for seven years, and I often say this, how someone treats somebody who's serving them food, how you treat somebody in the lineup of the bathroom, if they don't look like what you expect a person to look like in the lineup of your bathroom, just chill out. Don't you don't have to bother people, you know, and because it, it's a, a major stress, even even uh, for my partner, waiting in line of a bathroom, being stared at as if she doesn't belong in the bathroom lineup, and then having to change the way that she dresses to particular venues that are filled with, like you know, cisgender or straight people. So just just to think about how your interactions with people. Uh, can actually have long-lasting impacts on on self-worth, on feelings of safety, and and things like that. So, especially our interactions with strangers. I mean, as well as the people in our lives. Absolutely, yeah. You you got. I, there were four points. I didn't even realize. I didn't even realize I was making a four points. I like it. I guess you can't listen to yourself while you're talking. I feel like I'm rambling, <laughs> and you're like, no, you had. <laughs> yeah, no, I really love your points because I feel like you give people a lot of options because we all are passionate about something. If you're passionate about climate change, well, guess what? Climate change impacting climate change will also be um, helping food security and water security issues, and also connected to other issues around racism and things like that. So when you said that they're all connected you know i think social justice issues are are really connected even if we seem like we're working on different planes totally and i know even connecting back to my research i mean for me that was there are so many i already have my hand in like too many what's the metaphor i'm looking for i'm pots pot yes yes thank you i'm my hand in too many pots i've i'm you know a little i recognize that i probably you know have a like a very brawling kind of research portfolio and that's because i have a lot of interest but even then there are lots of things i think are really important and interesting and i don't do them and that's okay because mm-hmm. a a it's all it's all connected and i just had to find an entry point that worked for me and my entry point one entry point was trans health because of my own like lived and professional experience my other entry point was harm reduction and drug use because i like drugs and i have lots of friends and loved ones who do and, you know, 
have like personal relationships and experience that maybe want to do this, these areas of research. And so they just happened to be the two first things I started doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, but they're not the only things I could have done, or the, right? And your work is so exciting, too. I'm really honored to be working with you on your project in India around trans men's health, just to see that one thing I really appreciate about, about your work and, and why I like working with you is a lot of times people ask me, I want to do like LGBT work in some country. And I'm like, okay, go find the people working there already. <laughs> Cause there's already, there's already people doing the work. Like you just have to like, see, are they open and interested in working with you? Like, you know what I mean? Somebody based in North America wanting to go somewhere. It really is about those conversations. And I, I've seen you do that so deeply in your, in your work with communities um, in India, maybe some, you know, right now there's a huge crisis with COVID-19, but maybe later this year we can have somebody on, on the podcast from the team. That would be awesome. Yeah, this project has been great. I mean, and right now, I mean, talking about the link between like action and um, and research, I think like, I feel like with this project right now, the last week I've been, you know, working on the research part, but also just working with like community partners on the project to to raise funds for like emergency support for community members. And I think for the researchers listening, I think it's so important that we, that we don't lose sight of our, our responsibility also to provide like tangible um, material um, support to, to communities. You know, other people talk the talk about research not being um, extractive and being collaborative and supporting communities. And in these times of crisis, it's more important than ever to, to sort of to make that real. But yeah, this project, I mean, with on um, trans masculine and trans men's health in India, which I'm so happy you're a part of, it really came out of um, again, kind of serendipity, uh, was an invitation from a colleague in India who um, is a, a trans woman who's a trans community leader who said, you know, maybe four years ago approached me and said, you know, we've been trying to get support for community programs and health services for trans men, but it's been really challenging because there are no data. There's such a total invisibility in sort of published or available data about uh, trans men in India so we want to try to collect some data. Will you know? Can you sort of help us brainstorm? And that turned into a sort of a multi-year partnership, and now an NIH grant to to actually do that, which is so exciting. Big congrats <laughs> for that. Well, That's amazing. It's, it's been great, and I think uh, partly because I'm I'm stubborn, and people, you know, someone said to me, um, <laughs> you know, it's really unlikely that NIH is going to fund global trans health research that isn't about HIV because so much of the trans health funding globally has really gotten to HIV. And I said, well, that's exactly the reason why they should fund it and why I'm going to apply for this grant. Um, and very, the stubbornness serves me well. We have a lot but of I'll- things in common. I didn't realize, <laughs> Aiden. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get this grant just despite the people who said it wasn't possible. I love doing that. <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that. I, uh, on the ground, I've been working for a few years in, in Uganda with urban refugee youth in, in Kampala. And since COVID-19, food insecurity has been such a major, major, major issue. So as part of our, our uh, honoraria, we're giving uh, face masks that are made by 
uh, local refugee communities. So we're hiring them to make face masks and then giving them and, and sanitizer that's also made by refugee communities, but then also a parcel of food. And that has been really well received because it, it, there isn't always the same access in the markets um, with the COVID-19. So being able to give parcels of food and really tangible things, I think we can't lose sight of how important tangible benefits are are to people, whether it's money or food or actual, what people need for survival. So thank you for doing that work right now on the ground. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's what it's, I feel like it's what partnership looks like, like having this, like, I'm glad I've had the luxury of kind of building this, you know, building partnerships with community members on this project over years now, where it's not just, the relationship isn't just about the research, right? It's about, mm. it's about community strengthening and, and supporting community in, in all the ways that we can because when it, when this research project is is over like what um the, the data are important and they're important for advocacy and i'm you know really committed to research data translating into practice and policy but that even takes time and the people have to there has to be something real for people over the short term right mm -hmm. there are there are short-term benefits for researchers there have to also be short-term benefits mm -hmm. for communities involved in the research not just a, not just an honorarium <laughs> right thank you so much oh i know we're we're almost at time do you have time for a few wild card questions yes absolutely all right all right wild card question one what are you watching on netflix or hulu or amazon or whatever crave you're watching so i haven't actually watched anything other than like like the like the late night comedy shows in the last few weeks because I literally think I finished Netflix. <laughs> I, had, I went during the pandemic. I really got deep into every single space or sci-fi show, no matter how bad. <laughs> Obviously, the symbolism of me wanting to be somewhere other than Earth is very obvious. <laughs> but I finished them all. We got really into Drag Race, so we were just like. We watched, you know, you know, we hadn't caught up season 13, but we knew that the finale was last week. So we skipped ahead to the finale. Now we're working our way back up to the finale, which is kind of a relief because, you know, you know who won. Yeah, it's a bit anticlimactic, yeah. but. Yeah, but it was really good. And yeah, we had, we had watched a lot of other things, but now I only want to watch things that are like gay, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> and not depressing so i'm like okay this is almost the only thing i'm aware of because i've obviously watched it's creek like a lot and it's done and so that's I, i'm waiting for something else that's really gay and uplifting to happen so i think i realized of the root uh, yeah, i i should be watching things like that but instead i think the space shows were helping me psychologically because not only were we not on earth but inevitably, the situation in space is worse than anything that <laughs> be on Earth. Right? Like at one point, my partner came in and he was like, why are you watching people getting sucked out of airlocks and exploding into a million pieces? And I was like, well, <laughs> I have this deep desire to go to space and escape this, this planet. But this show is helping me to realize it would be worse. That is awesome. You know, every time you see those space shows, like Alien, there's like weird aliens. Yeah. My forms growing, you know, whatever those Matt Damon is on Mars or some weird thing is left somewhere and it grows into something that's going to attack you or something. So I like your strategy there. So, okay, second wild card. What's your karaoke song? Oh, the, I am a 
horrible, really bad singer like that. Okay, what's your song to get down and dance to? Like if it comes on, you're like, okay, or or give me your karaoke. It's not, I'm gonna tell you the last song I did karaoke to because I do karaoke so infrequently that I remember. <laughs> I think the last song was definitely Milkshake. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. It was probably like five years ago because I try not to do karaoke for the sake of others. But getting getting down to, I mean, I think everybody's favorite song of this whole pandemic year and a few months has been WAP, right? Okay, okay, okay. That was yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like Lil Nas X's last the song. is awesome. I love that too. And the video especially. <laughs> the video is the best. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, last one before I let you out on your day. Is there any word of wisdom or piece of advice that's been helpful for you on your journey that you want to share with the listeners? I mean, I think the most helpful advice I've gotten is to kind of ignore advice. <laughs> I I got, you know, I've um like my cur- the current research projects I'm working on where I was told that I, the grants were a bad idea and I applied for them anyway. <laughs> so I think partly is like, getting no you know kind of ignoring advice (laughs) um and being like being being stubborn um and believing like for me i think kind of being guided by by what i think is important and what and what matters even if that goes contrary to the advice that well many people have given me i love that so staying true to you and don't be deterred by people giving you advice not to do something. <laughs> I love it. You're kind of giving this, yeah. <laughs> this what do they call it? An intersectional, they call this anti-categorical. You're giving an anti-categorical yeah. <laughs> approach to advice. Give advice. Don't listen to yeah. any advice. <laughs> My advice is don't take advice. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on today. Aiden, it's been so wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been super fun. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, listeners, there'll be a link to Dr. Aiden Shime's work and website and all the things at the link in the bio. Thank you so much, Aiden. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.